Welcome to In-House Legal, where we cover a variety of issues pertinent to the general counsel and in-house legal departments of small, mid-size, and large organizations. Join host Randy Milch each month as he discusses the latest developments, trends, and best practices for this very busy and often complicated area of law. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, my name is Randy Milch, and I'm the host of In-House Legal on the Legal Talk Network. I'm honored and happy to have as a guest today Michael Frickless, Executive Vice President, General Counsel, and Secretary of Viacom, Inc. Mike has spent over 20 years as a senior lawyer and general counsel of Viacom and has been deeply involved in the legal issues surrounding the digitization of content. And most recently, he has become involved in cybersecurity issues, so I know there's lots to learn from Mike. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me. Could you just spend a minute and tell folks about Viacom? It's a powerhouse in the digital content industry and the content industry generally, but many folks might not know of the various brands that Viacom has. Yeah, over the years, we've been involved in a lot of different parts of the media business, including having owned CBS and a number of related businesses. Today, we're focused on the movie business where we own Paramount Pictures, which I think everybody is familiar with, and we own... Uh, over 200 cable television networks uh, around the world, which are no longer called cable television businesses, I think, but we call them content businesses under brands like Nickelodeon, VH1, MTV, Comedy Central, Spike, TV Land, uh, the Paramount Channel, and even a public service broadcaster in the UK called Channel 5. So you have a widespread swath of the digitized content industry, and uh, that's going to raise a lot of issues for you, which we'll get into later in the podcast. But I wanted to start off Mike, just by going through your background a little bit, folks are always interested in how general counsels end, end up being general counsels. So you're, a, you're actually a, uh, an engineer, aren't you, from, by training and undergrad? That's right. Uh, I went to University of Colorado. I grew up in Colorado uh, and went to the state school where I intended to be an entrepreneur in the technology world. And along the way, I got interested in uh, the concept of patent law and went to law school uh, at Boston University. My first summer, uh, I was fortunate enough to have a summer associate position at a local Boulder technology company called Storage Tech. And, uh, and that summer, there were two summer folks, one uh, doing patent law and one doing the business law related to technology, which was something I didn't know existed until that summer and looked really interesting. So I kind of changed my focus from uh, being a patent lawyer to being a business lawyer. Uh, with an emphasis on representing technology companies where I thought my my interest and background in technology would be useful. So how did you parlay that interest in technology law to to going to Viacom? I know it was, it was a little bit of a route there that was centered on yeah. personal relationships as much as anything else. It's true. Um, and there's a bit of a logic to it. But I think, you know, one of the things, especially for younger people starting out is to think broadly about your career and look for the opportunities where they happen. Uh, I started out uh, out of law school and went to the Silicon Valley. Um, none of those firms actually interviewed at my law school, so uh, I took a foray uh, out to Palo Alto to meet the firms there, and they were all interested in kind of the unique 
combination of uh, an understanding of technology and an interest in business law. Ended up picking a firm uh, in Palo Alto that's now part of the giant DLA Piper, but in those days it was about 40 lawyers focused on representing technology companies called um, Ware Fletcher and Friedenrich, and then Great Carry Ware and Friedenrich. And through that firm, I started working on a great diet of uh, venture capital financing and licensing and other sorts of things. I really enjoyed the small firm experience, which I think gives you a lot of insight into the various parts of, of legal problems. They're not less departmentalized. Um, and along the way, uh, in connection with those companies that was doing venture financing and then went public and then was doing follow-on financings, the opposite side of that transaction was a big New York law firm called Sherman Sterling, which had a small San Francisco office, and they were expanding and uh, and we connected, uh, and I went to go work for Sherman Sterling's San Francisco office. In those days, San Francisco was the center of activity in Palo Alto for, for most of the finance industry. So I uh, worked for Sherman. They said, you know, there's nine of us here, and there's 700 in New York, so if we're going to make partner, we really want you to go spend a little time in New York and come back. Went to New York. Uh, my diet had not involved much merger and acquisition work on the West Coast they were, uh, that was something a corporate lawyer was expected to do on the East Coast. There were separate departments for all of that. So I spent time learning how to do mergers and acquisitions. At around the same time, actually, this was 1987, the stock market crashed uh, and tech IPOs died. It was every bit as bad or worse than the 2000 crash uh, in technology. And um, one thing that started going wild was the price of gold. Um, and uh, there were a number of old line mining companies that were taking their gold companies doing gold company financings and taking them public. And somehow Sherman Sterling managed to get uh, a significant amount of that work. So I ended up doing work on gold mining companies. And then when I went to the merger group, I was doing acquisitions of gold mining companies. And along the way, a company, a European company acquired uh, a gold mining company in the West and offered me the opportunity to go back home to Colorado and be general counsel of their North American businesses. Uh, of which I would be employee number one, uh, which would be to set up a holding company to do deals and, and provide a base of operations for uh, this large, uh, really multinational. So I did that, and I so I got a little off track. Instead of going back to San Francisco, I went to my hometown of Denver, and my outside counsel was a Sherman Sterling partner who I'd met on the M&A team, uh, a guy named Philippe Domong. And uh, and we'd worked really well together at, at Sherman, and, and then um, I liked him enough that he was really my outside advisor uh, when I was um, in-house on doing deals. Uh, about three years later, he decided to come in-house to Viacom. Um, he had represented Thunder Redstone, who's the founder uh, or the acquirer, I guess, of Viacom back in uh, the late 80s. And he had accepted a job as general counsel, and he said, you know, I I really need somebody who understands technology. I really like working with you. And I've never been a general counsel before, and you have. So would you come out and be my deputy? And uh, the I liked the direction that Viacom was headed more than I liked the direction of the mining company. And even though Denver was, was home, uh, it had started to feel small. So I accepted this opportunity to be deputy general counsel at Viacom. And uh, that was 1993. Uh, my first... Actually, I would say before my first day on the job, uh, while I was taking a small break between jobs or hoping to take a small break between jobs, I got a phone call from Philippe saying, you know, we're, nobody at the company knows this, but we're working on a deal and uh, I'd really love you to come start early so you can help us with the deal. And so the first thing I ever worked on was uh, the acquisition of Paramount Communications. Uh, at that point in time, it was the successor to Gulf and Western, one of the biggest industrial companies in the country. And... Uh, 
uh, Viacom was was working to acquire it. Two months later, Barry Diller, we closed the deal. Barry Diller signed the deal. Barry Diller's uh, QVC made a hostile bid for the company, trying to break up our friendly deal. And we spent the next you know eight months or so uh, in the most intense, one of the most intense corporate takeover battles in corporate history. And uh, so it got to be you know a great opportunity to work very closely with the top people in the company, and uh, and that's how I ended up here. So you left what proved to be a cyclical tech world to go to the cyclical gold world, and then you ended up in content. But of course, purchasing uh, Paramount, which as you said was the successor to Gulf and Western, of course meant that Viacom ended up with something remarkably similar to a mining problem. Yeah, right. I told you that story. Uh, you know, there is, a, there is something to learn about the fact that everything you do, no matter what it is, is going to come in handy one day. And literally at the very beginning of my job in the entertainment business, I was doing due diligence on Paramount, uh, which had succeeded all the Gulf and Western liabilities. And lo and behold, their biggest liability, the thing they were most concerned about and spending the most money on was a mine in Colorado where a predecessor of Gulf and Western uh, had been the world's largest zinc company uh, and it operated for 100 years and was now polluting a river called the Eagle River in Colorado. So had you know flew back to Colorado and people were impressed by the fact that I knew all the right questions to ask uh, and all the right buttons to push um, and uh, certainly nobody else in the entertainment business has any idea how to how to address the issues relating to the mine pollution problem so there was also asbestos wasn't there that was a different one so when we merged with CBS in 2000 CBS was a renamed Westinghouse Corporation uh, so the old Westinghouse had acquired CBS a few years before and changed its name. Westinghouse had had made products that uh, incorporated asbestos. And uh, the way the asbestos litigations had proceeded over the years, all the companies that made asbestos were long since bankrupt. All the companies that used asbestos in their products were long since bankrupt. And the litigation had proceeded to uh, suing companies that had some, you know, they call them the tertiary defendants, the people who had somehow, you know, breathed, uh, in a direction that might have referenced asbestos. There were duty-to-warn cases and other sorts of things. Westinghouse never touched asbestos, but uh, they um, sold materials that were used in shipbuilding during World War II uh, that specified that asbestos be um, used as an insulator in the insulation. Uh, by the time we were working on that transaction, there were um, over 120,000 asbestos cases pending and and um, hundreds of thousands of more settled and billions of dollars of contingent liabilities. In the law department, we thought of the merger as the merger of the Gulf and Western discontinued operations with the CBS discontinued operations. But needless to say, the public relations people talking about the transaction didn't think that was the right way to characterize it. Of course not. Of course not. They <laughs> left all that. All the problems were left in your bailiwick. So I do want to point out uh, one thing here, and that is that your Philippe Domain, who is who brought you in uh, to be your deputy, is now the chief executive of, of Viacom. Is that correct? That is true. He um, actually right after the Paramount acquisition, he was named uh, deputy chairman. That was back in uh, 1994, I guess. And one of the two executives uh, under Sumner Redstone, who were really running the company. And Sumner, I just want to point out, also is a is sort of a legal superstar in of, in of and of himself, isn't he? He is. Sumner went to Harvard Law School right after World War II, after serving on the team that cracked the Japanese codes. He clerked for a Ninth Circuit judge. He had a Supreme Court case uh, that he won 
uh, in his 1920s um, and then gave up the law to be one of two brothers running his father's business that was in the, uh, the drive-in movie business in Boston. And he had used his knowledge of antitrust law to, uh, and, and, and his relentless approach to everything as a way to build up the largest or certainly the most profitable motion picture circuit uh, in the United States. So by the, by the time he bought Viacom, he had pretty much a lock on uh, the northeastern United States in terms of exhibition, uh, which he had a strong reputation, well-deserved, of kind of litigating with everybody in order to get what he wanted. In fact, during the Paramount deal, one of his strategies, you know, within a, within a month of my being at the company, we sued the largest cable operator in the United States, uh, John Malone's TCI, for monopolization. And, uh, you know, that was kind of a typical summer approach to things. He didn't, he didn't leave a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of room for anybody fought with everybody. It was a great experience. So I'd like to, you know, it's interesting. Many general counsel find themselves with clients who think they're lawyers and have to deal with them. Uh, you actually have two clients who are spectacular lawyers, uh, who run the company. What's, what's that like having to, you know, bring up your legal strategies, deal with your, your CEO and your chairman, uh, both of whom, have all the legal stripes anyone can imagine. Yeah, I, I really like it. I've worked for both. For a while, when uh, after Philippe left after the CBS merger, and I had a guy whose background was in advertising sales, uh, Mel Carmazan, and then a fellow who was from the promotion and creative side of the business, Tom Freston, as bosses. Uh, and they both view the world from very different lenses. Uh, and there's a lot of time spent kind of explaining legal and, and debating uh, what we would all view as legal first principles. Not only is there none of that with Sumner and Philippe, but I'd be at meetings with Sumner where he'd be citing cases to me, and, and he was right. Now, wasn't so good at citing cases that had been decided since 1965, but the ones he cited were right. And his legal analysis was really good. It keeps you on your toes. You know, you have to be thoughtful. On the other hand, it's great to be able to talk things through with lawyers. You have a similar worldview. Uh, it's not like we all view the world the same. There's a wide diversity of, of lawyers, but uh, we all speak the same language, and uh, first principles don't have to be addressed. Uh, you can proceed at a higher level, and it's very, uh, it's, a, it's a great kind of client to have, I think. Well, I, I commend you for uh, the role of uh, being lawyer to super lawyers. It's, uh, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting problem to have. It looks like it's time for us to take a short break. We'll be back in a few seconds with our guest, Mike Frickless, the general counsel of Viacom. This is normally the time in our show when we hear a word from our sponsors, and this could potentially represent an opportunity for you. In-house legal is seeking sponsorship. If you are interested in participating in our programming or would like more information about rates, please contact the team at Legal Talk Network at info at legaltalknetwork.com or go to their website at www.legaltalknetwork.com and click on Advertise. And welcome back to the second segment of In-House Counsel on Legal Talk Network. My guest today is Mike Frickless, the general counsel of Viacom. Mike, I want to change the uh, topic here and move to a couple of issues that are very, very current for uh, general counsels. First, uh, I'd like to to actually go into what is a critical item for Viacom and for uh, lots of 
companies in the content industry, and that is uh, copyright issues, and particularly copyright in the digital age. You know, you, Viacom, became pretty famous not too long ago because it sued the ubiquitous YouTube uh, over clips on that were on YouTube. What led Viacom to take such a significant step that uh, sue an icon like YouTube? Well, YouTube wasn't an icon at the time, but at the end of the day, our business is built on intellectual property. Frankly, when you really get into it from a policy perspective, a major part of the U.S. economy is built on intellectual property. Um, as you know, uh, we all rely every day on trademarks, on patent protection, on copyright uh, to keep maintaining the incentive um, and the reward for people who are innovative and, and creative. And you know, they're the biggest growth industries in the United States. Our business in particular is very highly dependent on copyright. We we invest several billion dollars a year in creating uh, television shows and other kinds of content, um, investing in our brands. And uh, movies are expensive things. And you know, it began to develop largely out of the academic world uh, in, in a world that really had little understanding of business. But um, out of that world, that uh, somehow copyright, you know, was was in the way uh, of of the consumer and not you know producing value for the consumer. Into that mix, uh, a little company called YouTube uh, launched. Originally, I think, not a business that was intended to be built on piracy and uh, a business that was intended to be a utility for people who wanted to share video with each other. Um, and I think that was the original concept. But within a few months, it became clear to the founders that the way people were using it was to post television shows and movies um, and other copyrighted material, um, and that this was enormously popular and would allow them to build their business uh, virally, um, the buzzword of the day, uh, and, um, and, and allow them to bail out at a very high price. So our industry, trade associations were working with the company. The music industry was working with the company. Um, the music industry was able to cut a deal. And at around that time, and literally this is less than a year after the company was formed, uh, a big company, Google, bought them. Um, and we had conversations with Google about doing a licensed content deal, uh, but it became clear that Google uh, wasn't prepared to pay a price that represented um, an acceptable economic arrangement with us. And we said, okay, so uh, if we're not able to do a licensed deal with respect to YouTube, then it's time for our content to come down. And instead of uh, taking what we thought were proactive steps and we were willing to work with them on what was technical and practical, and we're working with another number of other media companies at the same time, Instead, uh, their position was to trot out the Digital Millennium Copyright Act and say, oh, no, we don't have to do anything. And in fact, we're not going to do anything and we're going to let that piracy continue. And so your choice is to accept our terms or accept the theft of your content. From our perspective, that was an unacceptable uh, bargain and one, frankly, that coming from a large company like Google, uh, as opposed to you know, the infinite number of startups who may not have been as educated on the issues, was a problem for us. And uh, we felt that this was a, a threshold um, that couldn't be allowed to happen in the, you know, in the world of established organizations. That was, um, it was unfair, it was illegal, and it was a serious damage to the, to the business, not just the business model, but the business model of all content creators. So did we you, sued. Did you find that there was a reputational issue? You know, I, I compare it to the recording industry, which we all know went through a, a phase of highly publicized lawsuits against against individuals for piracy issues and other lawsuits. Uh, and they suffered 
you know, they, they, they suffered some reputational issues. Did you, did you think that the suit against YouTube and after it became part of Google, did you think that it was, uh, that Viacom had any reputational issues? Cause you took a very public role in explaining to folks why in fact you made this lawsuit. Was that as part of a prophylactic effort against the It was several things. Right. We didn't, we never sued YouTube, right? We only sued after Google bought them. Um, and that's a misconception that even has made its way into some textbooks on the topic, which, you know, was kind of shocking to me. We did not, wasn't a big company taking on a little company. It was a big company taking on a, a company that was much bigger than we were. I felt that the case was very compelling and that we needed to talk to the press and we needed to talk to people about why we did this, because otherwise the field was completely left open to, um, Lots of people, many of whom, uh, you know, are accepting money from the opposition and from companies that are making profits on uh, on piracy, that uh, we were leaving the playing field to them. So it was, you know, partly Viacom reputational. The good news from Viacom's perspective is that as to the most consumers, they focus on our brands and not on our corporate identity. But, you know, certainly there was some blowback. Um, we just felt it was uh, an important enough issue to take on. And we felt that if people you know, outside this little, uh, you know, cabal of, you know, copyright advocates were to understand the issues at stake, uh, that they would, you know, they, they, it would be very helpful in terms of uh, making our case. And I think, you know, the public matters in almost any of the issues, you know, Randy, you've been involved in the t- dozens of high profile issues where it used to be that you could just sit quietly and wait for the courts to decide an issue. When you're dealing with things that are a public concern, uh, people don't hesitate to write about it and they hesitate to blog about it. And the conversation bubbles up in all kinds of public places. It's influential on the legislatures. It's influential on judges. It's influential on the press. Um, And you either participate or you let the other side make their case and, um, you know, without responding. Yeah, indeed, you and I have been in, in these jobs over the period of time in which the common wisdom was to stay quiet and let the court decide what was going to do as opposed to being out there in the public. And now you know, I agree with you. It's, it's, it's a real issue to remain mute when your opponents are flooding all the new digital media with their point of view. If you're not out there responding, you're, you're probably, you're probably losing in some material respect. Right. And I, I thought, you know, I mean, maybe I'm a little biased about this, but I, but I thought on the YouTube cases, it was pending. I, I wouldn't say that press thought we, one, but I would say that people kind of wrestled it to an open mind. And there were certainly some very loud people who really hate copyright, you know, who, who were angry at the RIAA and, and became angry at us. But I, I think that the vast majority of people were, you know, piracy is bad. They started from a premise that piracy was bad and accepted the fact that, you know, it was important. Uh, issue and a legitimate issue for us to proceed against. There were some issues along the way that we had to deal with. Uh, you know, the ACLU was gotten into the act by some Google uh, folks on the theory that we were taking down videos that weren't, in fact, copyrighted. We, I, you know, in real time before the lawsuit got filed, but literally the same day, uh, we had conversations with them and helped them to understand what our processes were and made some changes to our approach to satisfy them. Uh, we engaged in various dialogues with others. We listened uh, and uh, adapted our approach to try to make sure we were minimizing the damage on people who might have legitimate beefs. One of the videos that was taken down in error uh, for reasons I still don't know uh, was a video of a copyright professor at Harvard Law School 
uh, I think having dinner with his family, which, you know, was probably not the best video to have taken down in error. Uh, but, you know, we got it fixed within the day. Um, and people felt like we were not some monolithic thing in the distance, but that they were real people that they could talk to and they knew and they could pick up the phone and call. And that was really uh, helpful in humanizing the debate. Let's turn the, the conversation a little bit again. I want to talk about cyber. You know, the there's been so many high-profile cyber attacks recently, including the Sony hack, which, of course, was uh, all about a, a satirical movie. And as a an entity that owns, among other content, South Park, uh, which at times, of course, is uh, satirical, I, I guess that the Sony hack must have been quite a wake-up call for you about uh, who, who your cyber opponents might be at any one minute. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I think we were already focused on cyber, but it was a wake-up call for my CEO. And I get a lot more done when it's a wake-up call for my CEO than I can do for my own chair. And so we were in the process of working through and getting more materials, and uh, we'd already had presentations for our audit committee uh, on cybersecurity to become an annual event. Um, before the Sony hack, you only have to, you know, pick up the newspaper every day and see the things that are going on in other companies. Um, and we had been targeted. We'd been targeted by Anonymous uh, back in the early days of YouTube in light of uh, some things that had happened during discovery in the YouTube case. And so from time to time, you know, we, we, we'd had that experience. But what the press of the Sony hack did for us enabled us to get more resources, uh, enabled us to... Uh, get some things done in a much faster time frame than they were going to happen otherwise. Um, was able to get the attention of the organization in a way that uh, you know made us more effective in, in moving down the path. That you know we're uh, sometimes, as you know, the best projects get caught up in the the slow moving machinery of big corporations, um, and they were no longer caught up. What? Let's talk for a minute about one thing that's of particular interest, though, to lawyers and should be to general counsel, and something you and I have discussed in the past. You know, it's one thing to talk about all the networks and all the information that a company has, but I think that there, and, and you and I have discussed this, there are special responsibilities for the general counsel's office vis-a-vis -vis their principal vendors outside firms. What steps have you taken along the lines of dealing with the, the law firms that, that Viacom uses to insist that their information, which of course is your information, is appropriately secured? Right. You know, part of it is a, uh, is a resource issue. We're not really equipped to go out to the hundreds of law firms that we work at and uh, debate them in terms of security. So what we did is we prioritized the ones that have the most secure of our information. And then uh, we sent them a questionnaire. Um, we actually allied some of the questionnaire questions that we asked them along the lines of questions that were being asked by the financial services firms, which are much further along and much more heavily resourced uh, than we are in this space. Um, the financial industry has now identified some, uh, a couple of their large law firms to be leaders in the cybersecurity area. So we've drafted on that effort uh, and talked to them about which firms are leading to standards. We've also been talking now with some of the law firms about some standard settings efforts. There's a concept of an audit that is brewing out there, which would be really helpful. We're pushing, I don't think we have to push. I think the financial services industry will push law firms to, uh, when the audit standard is set, to be um, get an independent certification that they meet a objective standard, 
which will make all of our lives a lot easier. In the meantime, we've been asking people about it. We've been collecting these questionnaires uh, from the largest firms, and we've been reviewing them with our internal cybersecurity team. And uh, and really, the satisfaction is that they're using the right tools and that they're thinking about it the right way, that it's an area that they're paying attention to. I, I can't really design the computer systems for our outside law firms, but it's, it is interesting that you get the questionnaires back, the firms, especially earlier, uh, the firms that clearly had thought about it and had comprehensive answers um, constructed in the right way, and the firms that uh, you know clearly had not um, put the right level of emphasis on the area and really didn't know how to respond to the questions. And that, that tells you a lot um, and, uh, and was actually a guide, guidance for business. And so did you, I mean, this is where the rubber meets the road, right? You, you have a great law firm, does great work for you, you get back their questionnaire, it's pretty obvious they have little thought put into their own cybersecurity. Did you take steps? Did you call them up and say, you better, you better start thinking about this quicker or the Viacom business is going to start being diverted to firms who, who know what they're doing in this front? The answer is yes. I will say that none of the biggest firms that we use had, they, they were already um, along the way in dealing with the situation before we got involved. Uh, because all of them do work for the largest banks in in, uh, in the country, and all of those banks uh, were all over the firms, partly because of uh, um, initiatives they were being forced on them by the regulators. So the good news was is that at least the biggest places um, were already thinking about it. I think that is good news, and I think that you know it's it would be salutary for general counsels all over the country to be peppering their firms with the same sort of questionnaires. Uh, I think that the only way that all the firms are going to get to the right place or is, is through the, you know, it's like with everything else. It's their consumer, their consumer is going to have to demand it. Yeah, I think, and I don't know if this has happened yet or not, but I, I think it's crying out for some collaboration among law firms because I think, you know, medium, small sense firms are just not going to be able to implement the level of hygiene that the biggest firms are able to do without, uh, you know, drafting on efforts by uh, larger consortia. Um, sharing of threat information, sharing of uh, what defenses are working, sharing of best practices. Right, which is, of course, the crucial step for industry at large, I think, that's, that's, that's being undertaken now. And hopefully that, you know, there'll be some legislation that'll, that'll increase information sharing all over the board. Uh, yeah, so. it's, it's interesting. I mean, there was, there was a red herring out there that information sharing would violate antitrust laws. And some of the early cyber legislation, you know, was focused there. Um, the Justice Department has come out with guidance now that, that they, they agree, uh, frankly, with a view that we've always held here, that that was not a real concern. I think the bigger concerns are that uh, people don't want to disclose their vulnerabilities for fear that they'd either be exploited uh, in a cyber crime or that regulators, uh, law enforcement, plaintiff's lawyers might become aware of those vulnerabilities and exploit them you know, in the sense of uh, you know, bringing civil or criminal actions or you know, otherwise being at the ready uh, to pounce uh, when and if there is a problem. Yeah, it is. It is true at this stage, though, the government, depending on the sector you're in and the ind what industrial sector you're in, the government is both an ally and an adversary, sometimes both. Uh, mopping up actions are not that un infrequent. Right. And the government's not one thing. So, you know, there are a bunch of independent agencies, for example, that are various stages of their knowledge about this. There are 50 states with laws, a patchwork of laws that relate to different aspects of cybersecurity that are in some ways even inconsistent. 
you know, and there's no real establishment yet of a duty of care. So, you know, there is nobody who is not going to be hacked. It's basically the, the learning, right? Um, they say there are two kinds of companies, those that have been hacked and those that have been hacked and don't know it. And those that have been hacked again, I think. Yeah, those have been hacked again. And so, yeah, we we literally get millions of incidents a month if you you know measure the things that are coming into the Viacom's defenses. Um, and I'm sure for a big company like uh, Verizon, it's probably millions a day. And so, you know, how to come up with a coherent scheme of responsibility for people who are reckless, uh, but not for those who are. Uh, you know, trying to keep up with a rapidly evolving um, uh, environment, um, I think is, uh, is, a, is, is the serious issue that has to get addressed by the government. I agree. And I think we'll leave it on that note. Mike, I want to thank you for spending some time on In-House Legal today. It's been a hugely informative uh, little over a half hour. So thank you very much. Thank you, Randy. Appreciate it. And I want to thank all of you who've listened to our podcast today. For all of you listeners who would like some more information on what you heard today, please visit www.legaltalknetwork.com, where you can also follow us on iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. That brings us to the end of our show. I'm Randy Milch. Thank you for listening, and join us next time for another great episode of In-House Legal. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.